Hello and welcome to the EACCNY Pulse, a podcast platform that showcases transatlantic business insights from our members on both sides of the pond. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild and I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York. Our series, A Look into the Crystal Ball on the Future of Finance, features high-level European and American executives with whom we will explore how the pandemic has reshaped priorities and expedited innovation within the financial services industry. We hope you will enjoy this series and I encourage you to rate and subscribe to the EACCNY Pulse on your favorite podcast network. Hello, my name is Paolo Frazzini Melendez. I manage our member engagement and new initiatives at the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York. Welcome to our third installment of A Look into the Crystal Ball on the Future of Finance. This episode features Ada Crevi from the European Investment Bank and Jamie Colosimo from Citigroup. Both entities are members of the EACCNY, and we are very grateful to have you here with us. So this podcast will explore how the EIB is aligning investments with the Paris Climate Accord. Additionally, they will dive into the EU taxonomy for sustainable finance and how they are developing screening criteria to make sure the investments are measurable and compliant with the set environmental, social, and corporate governance, or ESG, requirements. Ela Krevi is the director and head of the Capital Markets Department at the EIB. She is heavily involved in their green bond principles, as well as the bank's expert group on sustainable finance. Currently, Ms. Krevi is an alternate member of the board of directors of the European Investment Fund. We also have Jamie Colosimo present. She is Citigroup's head of ESG for North America, as well as their head of business advisory services for North America as well. Prior to her work at Citi, Jamie served as senior economist and strategic advisor to the White House and senior U.S. policymakers on issues relating to global macroeconomics, geopolitics, and international banking. So with this in mind, I now pass it over to you, Jamie. Thank you so much. And uh, Ayla, real pleasure to be here with you today in conversation. I'm excited to kick off with just a broad understanding of uh, really setting the stage for us on how we should think about climate risk today. We know that EIB has moved from being an EU bank supporting climate to the EU climate bank. And to open our conversation, could you level set us really on the ways that the risk of climate change um, and how these collapse of ecosystems around the world really do pose a challenge to the economy globally and certainly the financial system? Okay, thank you, Jamie. And uh, thank you, EACCNY, for this uh, uh, invitation. Well, that's a that's a very good question, Jamie, and it's it's not a small one. So we might take a week, but let's try to deal a little bit quicker with with this question. So uh, maybe I'll start a little bit with biodiversity because it may be less known. I mean, we have been talking about climate change now for for a few years, and and that is maybe a little bit easier to to capture what it means. But biodiversity is 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 kind of omnipresent in a way as. Well, in a way, like climate is, and if we lose the biodiversity or if we uh, destroy the health of the ecosystems, in other words, there are lots of consequences. I mean, if we think about, for example, one big area which will be losing is agriculture all around the world. If we lose, uh, for example, pollinators, which are the little insects and uh, and and bees, etc., we will lose a big part of the output of agriculture globally. 
There's a big part of the poorer world where people where people are employed in agricultural sector. And if we destabilize that sector, there will be plenty of people who will, for example, lose their jobs. We need biodiversity for our food security. Uh, there's a huge amount of, of food produced in, in, with a very uh, large number of different species. Uh, but if you look at what the world's people are eating, then 60% or so about the um, plant-based food is coming from three uh, species only, that's corn and rice and wheat. And that means very one-sided nutrition for a lot of people and nutritional deficiencies. So we have to keep also the, the food production much, much uh, richer than it is. Plants are essential for medicines. I mean, uh, one quarter of drugs which are used in modern medicines are derived from rainforest plants. So again, if we lose rainforests, we lose a lot of that. Um, so it, it's, uh, I mean, the implications are just huge. Businesses benefit from that. Well, we already mentioned pharmaceutical industry uh, benefits from it because they get raw materials. Tourism, let's not even, um, let's forget, not forget tourism. People go and see, I don't know, coral reefs and coral reefs, if they disappear, these people will suffer, those who get their livelihoods there. So we already mentioned the agricultural sector, but also forests give a lot of work for a lot of people. I think around one and a half million people are one way or the other employed by the, by the forest sector. So these are implications are huge. So we are not just talking about the disappearance of bees, which is dramatic in itself, but they are, they are just impacting every field of life, uh, if you want to think about it. Uh, and of course, climate change is, 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 they are intertwined. I mean, you can't really separate one for the other. Uh, if we have a, a climate change, then we have uh, agricultural sector is suffering and that impacts biodiversity and vice versa. So um, I would actually like to say that well, the way I think about it in my own mind is that we have this natural capital on the on the earth. And um, so far it has been used freely. You could take any, as much as you wanted or spoil as much as you wanted. And you certainly did not pay the, um, the current price for it. And now what we are talking about that, well, this is a limited amount of biodiversity or climate or oceans that we have. And if you use them, first of all, you have to use them as efficiently as possible, which is why we are talking about all of this. Or if you have to use them, you have to pay the right price for it. So this is, I think, what we are talking about when we combine the environment with, uh, with finance. That's such an interesting point that you end on, really thinking about this idea of now how we as a society, as individual firms, as governments and economies start to grapple with this challenge of internalizing costs that have since been externalized in this use of natural capital really throughout the world. So it's such, a, such an interesting point to think about there. And I think you also raise then that when we talk about environmental issues, you know, we certainly often go to climate and begin to focus on carbon emissions and all of those related conversations. What uh, it sounds like you've raised that I think is another important and interesting angle is really that expansion across to other elements of environmental issues with, with which we should have awareness. Certainly um, raising that element of biodiversity and even more specifically, would love your thoughts on what role preserving the oceans play in advancing the fight against climate change. You've talked a bit about the blue economy agenda. And so when yeah. you think about the intersection of the blue economy advancing our green objectives, 
could you talk a little bit about how we should think of the interconnectivity between those issues and agendas as well? Yes. So, for example, uh, there's a very strong link between oceans and climate. Oceans now hold, I think, something like 90% of the heat produced in the last 50 years. And we, we, we know that, that if the temperatures continue to rise and the oceans become more acidic and there's less oxygen there, then we will have big losses in biodiversity and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and all the consequences that I just spoke about. You put all of these together, we will start to talk about population or migration of, of populations from one place to the other. We will have whole um, countries which will be wiped off the map if we have the level of, of, uh, of sea rising uh, because of a warming climate. These are pretty dramatic uh, consequences. That's what I said, that it's, it's difficult to talk about one thing without, without linking the other. These are all uh, very uh, much uh, intertwined. And when you, when you talk about the low coastal areas, which are first at risk, uh, there are all, almost 700 million people globally who live in these low coastal areas whose homes and lives are at risk uh, with the oceans uh, warming and ocean, ocean levels rising. So there is no sort of uh, one problem and then we tackle, at the, tackle it at the time. I think we really have to think about the whole, whole thing. If you use it, you pay for it. And if you use it, you use it as little as possible. Um, at this, for example, just think about energy efficiency. You need to heat your houses in most parts of, or at least big parts of the world. Uh, but you have to do it as efficiently as possible, not to waste energy. And I always try to think about this through everyday examples. If you have a bakery around the corner from your home, that bakery um, pays for the electricity, pays for the flour, pays for the sugar, whatever else they put into their their bread, pay salaries to the people, and nobody questions this. Of course, they pay this. Uh, but if you have another kind of industry which is emitting uh, lots of carbon dioxide into the air or who is uh, destroying biodiversity, they do this either for free or at a very low cost, which is not at all the real cost. I don't know why we tolerate this. And this is, this is uh, when you think about it in these terms, it's very clear that this is not about some tree hugging. This is actually about hard business numbers. I mean, why somebody can use free resources and somebody else cannot? I know why, why doesn't the baker get the same as some oil company gets? So we, we have to bring these thoughts to, to sort of everyday level. And I think that's that's what we are talking about here with, with all the action on biodiversity, all the action on blue economy, all the action on carbon emissions. This is what we are talking about. Pay the right price and use as little as possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You also started to allude to this idea that different economies, different firms, individuals will experience the climate crisis quite differently. And certainly those effects are spread out um, in ways that are, are not always equitable or experienced quite differently. When we even shift that from this macro view to perhaps even more of a micro view, we know that there are also regional differences in how people perceive the best course of action to be activated around tackling the climate crisis. And maybe you could speak a bit about what role individuals' behavior plays in making change in this space, um, as well as that intersection between technology, public policy, and then certainly that firm and individual behavior. Um, yes, another good question. You are only asking big questions today, Jamie. <laughs> I think if you think about, for example, this climate climate discussion and the climate finance, I'm, I'm a finance person, so I'm, I'm coming from the finance angle all the time. This started, um, let's say, some seven years ago, maybe, largely from sort of individual people's interests. I mean, 
You remember when we were talking about the Tokyo Protocols and Copenhagen um, summits, and I can't remember the COP numbers anymore, but these were largely political agendas, and then nothing very much happened in, the, in, in real life. But when we saw that people within finance started to get interested, sometimes it was because we got the millennials into the business, into the age where they, they take on business, or it could be insurance companies who saw that, well, this kind of climate thing happening uh, is normally in our calculations happening once every hundred years. And now in the past 10 years, we have seen four of these. Something is happening and we, we, we need to adjust our thinking. So it was a bit bold. And I think it was coming from both of those sides, but private people thinking that there's something we need to change. And then gradually it became sort of institutionalized. Uh, but it really started from the uh, individual level. Only now, several years after, I think we are seeing the governments coming coming on to the um, to the real action. And uh, I think this is positive, especially being a finance person. To me, this was something that finance pushed very uh, very hard. I think that that reminded of me. That was some advisor to a U.S. president. I think it was President Clinton who said once that he would like to be reincarnated as a bond market because everybody is in all of the bond markets. So I think this can be sort of uh, transferred to also to this discussion that bond markets and fixed income markets was a place where this really started to become institutionalized. And when big money talks, then another big money will tend to listen and then politicians also would put a little bit more um, work, work into it. So I don't know if this answers your questions, but this is how I see the, the, the dynamic, how it has worked in the last, uh, not quite 10 years, but seven, eight years how it started and where we are now. And now everybody is sort of jumping on the bandwagon in the good sense. And we are starting to get legislation and regulation, and, and which is good that it's coming later on because you can't do that too early. Yeah, I think it was good that we let the voluntary action shape things and get them going before we went in too early with legislation and regulation. But now that is coming as well. And now I think it's a sort of mature time for that to happen. So, Ayla, speaking about how the taxonomy has advanced in the EU, how regulation in general around the sustainable investing agenda has advanced globally, but certainly specifically to the EU, could you speak a little bit about then how the taxonomy's usage as a finance person, as you mentioned, um, support this overall sustainable investing agenda? Yes, there is, uh, there is so much talk about this taxonomy. Of course, if you go to the origin of this discussion, it was... It was decided that we should develop a sustainable finance taxonomy, environmental first of all, as an answer to a question which was probably the most frequently asked question in the green finance market, green bond mostly, but green finance market, which was, well, who decides what is green enough? How do I know that if I invest in this instrument that then I'm green enough that I will not have to regret afterwards that this was not greenwashing? And that's a very good question. And for a long time, when things were based on voluntary uh, actions, I think we all agree that, well, unless it's environmentalists who do science-based evaluations, our finance people, we can't really decide what is green enough. So we stuck to a large extent to the sort of safe uh, renewable energy, which is sort of zero carbon emissions when it's operational and so on. And this idea of creating a taxonomy, uh, which would then give those definitions, what is green enough, came from against that background. And the, what is being done in Europe, the taxonomy, which is now based on six environmental objectives. Um, let me see, I always forget one. Climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, 
pollution prevention uh, or water and marine systems, ecosystems or biodiversity and uh, circular economy. There it goes. That any activity, economic activity, which can have a reasonable impact in any of this respect, we would say that if you do it like this or about below this threshold, then you are green enough. So then I know that if I, for example, get uh, get my house more energy efficient, I have to get it this much more efficient, and then I can call my house a greenhouse. To be uh, again, um, sorry, in everyday life examples, this was uh, this is the, the most important thing. The other thing is, of course, that then following this taxonomy, we will have regulations for corporate disclosures because we need the data. We need these definitions, but then we need the data who is within or who is outside. Uh, one sort of misunderstanding with this taxonomy has been for a long time that people think that if you are not in the taxonomy or your activity or your business is not within, then you are somehow banned or outlawed or, or illegal. It's not. It's just that you should not call yourself green, if that you are not, or Paris aligned or whichever uh, epithet you want to take. But there are plenty of activities which are, I would say, neither here nor there. They are neutral. Culture, for most part, is not carbon intensive enough that it could improve things so much that it would make a, make a difference on, on climate change. And then, of course, we have the brown industries, which can either stay brown uh, or improve. Uh, and become greener. So we have all these different variations uh, of, of color and uh, this uh, taxonomy so far has been mostly concentrating on the part that should be calling itself green. So nobody's going to ban uh, coal industry, nobody's going to ban oil industry. What we are saying is that they should be recognized for, for what they are, disclose honestly what their emissions are, and then pay the price for the carbon emissions that, that they're causing. So this is what it is. And I, I think Europe has tackled this task uh, as a sort of first one, and uh, it's a huge task. It's a huge undertaking, and it is uh, done by scientists, so it's science-based. It's not taken out of the hat. Of course, it is also a political process. I'm not saying that it isn't, because it is, and then at the final stages, you get these discussions, what's get, what gets in and what gets out. But we are trying to keep it as science-based as possible, because that's the only way of doing it in a, in a coherent way. And I think other parts of the world who are now working on their taxonomies, there are quite a few projects ongoing in different parts of the world. I think they will they will need to copycat what we are doing in Europe, but somehow they will be referencing to what it is. And they may change those criteria or screening criteria, or they may have different objectives. They may put a different sort of priority on one objective compared to the other. But but this is some kind of reference because there's no point in making such a huge work uh, several times over. So it's it's it's. Uh, I guess you have in one way you have a first mover advantage. Once you do it, then you will be in in many points the reference for the others. I think that is what what Europe is going through. I'm not saying that the taxonomy project right now is perfect because it is not very few human undertakings are perfect, but it's a pretty impressive uh, construction. And what we have been at EIB trying to promote the idea is that other geographies, countries, regions, if they develop their taxonomies, that we would use a similar kind of architecture because then things are comparable. And there is one project going on between EU and China right now to try to fit the pieces together so that we get not the same numbers necessarily, but we get similar tables, let's say. This is... Um, what will be guiding us, of course, in the future, if we are the EU Climate Bank, then 
I guess we have to use the EU climate definitions and EU environmental definitions as well. You mentioned then as a part of this, thinking through this implementation, using these definitions, certainly relying on disclosure and data to support the execution of this taxonomy objective is is still a, a significant challenge. And we're operating in a world with imperfect data, but that imperfect data certainly can't prevent progress in its entirety. So uh, perhaps could you also talk about how you're approaching this effort, knowing that we do have some gaps in the data, challenges with data acquisition. We are still not in a world where disclosure leads forward on every one of these issues. Your approach there would be interesting. Yes, I think that with the data question, I think that this is not very evolving. There are initiatives. Um, there are there's a, the idea in Europe to make a sort of single entry point uh, a database where you can access plenty of this information. There are also uh, private sector companies who are collecting a huge amount of data and who obviously can can sell that and, and slice it and dice it the way you need. But I was talking to one very large investor just this morning, and they said exactly this. We were thinking that it doesn't make sense for let's say hundreds of thousands of investors globally to all do the same work and try to find the data from different places. This has to be somehow centralized. And, and then we, we have the data somewhere, something like artificial intelligence, I think can be quite a big help in just browsing huge quantities of, of, of data. But I think that, that, that convergence must happen at some stage. We are now only defining what kind of data we want. We still need to get that data. And then yet another step is to somehow centralize it and standardize it so that it can be easily used. It's not an easy task, but I think technology and evolving technology is certainly going to help us. And I think we are all going to take a digi leap with, 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 with all this within a few years. Absolutely. And picking up on that then, Ayla, uh, thinking of where we could head forward, looking a few years ahead, uh, if you and I were having this conversation, then again, in even a year's time, what do you think might have changed? What do you hope would have changed? Uh, in how banks or regulators are not only approaching these Paris climate commitments, but also aligning their disclosure efforts around best practices and really bringing that harmonization together that you mentioned. Well, there are plenty of wishes what I would like to say, and some of them I'm, I'm sure they will come, at least in some form and shape. We hope that uh, everybody who needs to do all this dis disclosure and reporting have uh, figured out a way to do it. Also hope that this data will be available to everybody in as much as they need. I would also hope that, for example, central banks take into account more the environment in their goals. I mean, monetary policy and inflation target, it is not somehow uh, inherently uh, separate from, from a stable economy and stable environmental um, sector. So this, this, I think, will develop over the next few years as well. And then, of course, I hope that we will get externalized uh, this, this cost uh, that uh, human activity is causing to, to the environment. It doesn't mean that we need to outlaw anything. We just need to see that everybody is paying the right price for what they are using for their business in, in terms of the common uh, natural capital. So that's quite a list already. But like I said, I don't think we get there with all of these. But I think all of these will advance to some extent. And some of them will be advancing more. It's hard to say at which speed we will go. Be, we will be doing all of this, but I think it is very clear what the direction is. I don't know what the speed is, but the direction. I'm, I'm convinced that there's no going back on any of this anymore. It's too strong. Absolutely, we are at a decisive point, and certainly the direction of travel has been set. 
Um, thank you so much for your thoughts today. It's been really wonderful to be in conversation with you and, and appreciate your, your insights here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of EACCNY Pulse. Please rate and review this podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on transatlantic business insights and to better understand the complexities of the international environment we work in. For more information about the European American Chamber of Commerce and how to join our dynamic network, please reach out to membership at eaccny.com. We look forward to hearing from you.